players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and the most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Rite of Flame, Burning Wish, Peer into the Abyss, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Rowling YouTube, Therabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming and Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToaMagic.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 88 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. Happy Brew Year! We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of TheEpicStorm.com. One of the things we discussed in our free show is why we're a little bit off the ball right now. We're, we're going through it a bit. We, we got some things going on. We're here. We're, we're here to talk about some cool strategy and brewing. And we'd like to do a quick shout out to our new patrons. Yep. Shout out since the last episode, we've got Pexy, cool name, and JT Ryan. Thank you for joining the Patreon world. Also, we're going to make a call. We have a YouTube channel where we literally just upload the same episode that you're currently listening to. Even if you don't listen on YouTube, if you have YouTube, if you could go hit the sub button, that would be great. We're like 70 subs away from monetizing that. It would be a big help. Thank you all. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce today's topic. So uh, many of us play a variety of decks on our, our channels, and many of them are, you know, wild brews. Some of them are going to be successful and some of them aren't. And we thought this was a good time to revisit the idea of brewing. Now, this is something that we talked about over the summer. If you're a newer listener of the podcast, please consider checking out episode 75, The Eighth Deadly Sin net decking for some brewing fundamentals but we're going to specifically be talking about brewing in you know 2023 legacy in legacy where the initiative has come to magic online and thrown legacy into this period of i guess like renaissance where people are really rediscovering old tech trying to repurpose old decks old cards and people are having to adapt to Legacy. A lot of the past year has been relatively stagnant, with Blue Red Delver being the top dog, and maybe like Doomsday and some flavor of control shortly behind it. And now things are fluctuating a lot more than they have for a long time. Yeah, it's it's a wild time. The uh, initiative having the go-to white shell that we talked about, and even among white shells, there's various shades within the mono white i have been both brewing with and seeing against me in the queues initiative cards put into all sorts of decks regular old mid-range bant with white plume adventure and true name nemesis i just yesterday played against a deck with lotus petals in it that had both hull breacher and white plume adventure that i could gas into in a kind of blue white turbo shell i have a stasis deck that i'm very interested in that i think might be medium real i don't know uh 
just there's a lot of places to put these initiative cards. So there's a lot of speeds you need to interact with them at. No matter what, whether it's turn one or turn three, initiative existing in the format is not a place where you could just sit around. You got to figure out how to beat these decks that are going to snowball advantage very quickly. And I think, Bryant, I'm going to I'm going to leave this next point to you here. Tell us about about Bruin. You know, what do you what do you think going in? I would like to start off by saying that I take umbrage with the fact that you said that we're currently in a renaissance fill. I think that it is absolutely disgusting that a Chalice of the Void deck is this good. Absolutely terrible. Ruin my year. Man, some of the builds are even like yeeting Chalice of the Void. I don't think that card's good. I think you're supposed to play Swords to Plowshares in the main deck. That's actually somewhat true. I was doing some homework today before we did our episode, and I noticed that a lot of the initiative lists are moving Chalice to the board. Some are even cutting Mindbreak Trap, which blew my mind. For the ones that are not playing Mindbreak Trap, they're playing Deafening Silence, so it's still something for combo. In general, I was kind of surprised right now because I think there's when the formats become like this, and it's not even just legacy this happens in several formats usually when things are i don't want to say unhealthy but when things are more consolidated into a couple decks being very very good people look for ways to either go under or go over it's the natural flow of the game and one thing that i've noticed is a lot of people are trying to go under and as a response to that looking at deck lists elves I saw four Mindbreak Traps in some lists today. A lot of them had three. Uh, Painter, three or four Mindbreak Traps in the board. Initiative might be dropping them because its matchup is so good, which is something I complained about in the last episode. But decks right now are adapting to a number of things, and it's not just Delver or Initiative. It's They're adapting to the things that people are doing to try to beat Delver or Initiative as well, which is a sign of a good metagame. One thing that we all struggle with as content creators for Legacy is coming up with a successful deck for the format and right now the bar is super high for coming up with a brew because you not only have to be able to beat delver which beats you with wasteland days force of will an efficient threat card advantage you have to beat uh initiative with chalice of the void thalia the initiative itself under costed overpowered creatures it's just very very difficult and then on top of that decks that are trying to go under so the epic gamble reanimator oops all spells it's tough to find something that is good against all of them and i guess that's sort of my point here maybe brian's initiative stasis deck has the trick because it gets to play blue that's something that not a lot of people are exploring right now i think one good thing that i saw playing legacy yesterday was i saw the boros initiative deck people adopting fury and i was like oh that's the mirror breaker we're getting to that point in the metagame evolution that people are trying to go to the mid-range wars and i haven't taken a breath in about two minutes so i'm going to let brian and phil uh chime in here yeah i queued into white initiative the other day and they were playing some number of walking ballista in the main. That's a weird card to have in a deck like that, unless you are very specifically trying to punch a hole and run through it. Because that's not a deck that really gets above four mana a lot of the time, unless things have gone wrong. And it's a really crazy thing to whip into play off the throne of the dead three. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stop you. You're totally misevaluating this card and, and what it's for. Um, So I, I wrote thousand or so words on this for my Patreon. So what's going on here is that's the 16th sideboard slot. That is something that's in the main deck so you can free up a sideboard spot elsewhere walking ballista is in the deck specifically to deal with cards like empty shrine kanushi and unchained berserker that are x1 pro white creatures you're just playing walking ballista to floop those out of the way 
specifically because they can't be answered by your source of plowshares, your touch the spirit realms that and your solitudes that normally take care of everything else the format has to offer outside of like true name nemesis. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it reminds me of in the mystical tutor reanimator days for for the ancient among us here, you basically got to play goofy tech just for the reanimator mirror, because it's the only thing you cared about. You just beat every other deck. And it wasn't really close. My reanimator deck towards the end of that format before Tudor got banned, I had Dryad Arbor, which could both insulate against Edict effects off of Fetchland. And in the mirror, nobody's willing to do anything because you can counter each other's reanimate spells and then reanimate each other's creatures and you never want to entomb. So Dryad Arbor could just go coast to coast, just attacking for one. Uh, you just use your turn one Misty Rainforest and start bashing. And I also played, we talked about this in the pre-show, but I am very sick right now and my brain isn't working. Who's the 2-2 idiot that comes back from the graveyard every turn if you don't have a creature? Nether Spirit. Nether Spirit. All right. I found it. Uh, Nether Spirit was also a card I played in my reanimator sideboard because I didn't care if it got stolen in the mirror because it, it's not a huge deal, but it let you cast Entomb and then not cast another spell in the reanimator mirror because your opponent always let that card resolve thinking they were going to fight over the reanimate and steal your thing. But then you just go to your upkeep and bring a 2-2 into play. And 2-2 two, two plus 1-1 one, one off Dryad Arbor, you can attack for three a turn without ever casting a spell and break the mirror that way. And that sounds ugly, and it is. But it worked because you only cared about one thing and shoving walking ballista into the main deck of white initiative just in case a, an x1 with pearl white is boarded in against you sounds like that sort of build space i think the white initiative deck should be like very hyper focused on winning the mirror and beating blue red delver and i think the builds that have like the source of plowshares in the main deck do a much better job of having a respectable delver matchup you're, you're doing powerful enough things you're still gonna steal a good number of games versus delver you know, it's not like it's going to be a landslide in Delver's uh, direction or anything, but Swords is Swords is so, so good there. One thing that I've sort of forgotten, is, because I often play from the combo perspective, I recorded Belcher yesterday, and I was like, okay, I can get my Belcher in a play on turn one, this way it gets underneath their prison effects, and they just played Touch of the Spirit Realm, and I was like, I admittedly forgot about that. Like, that deck just has so many tools now, and then on top of that, I've seen some pretty cool plays recently. People are experimenting with, um, I'll say, unique brews in the leagues. I got paired against one that was an Eldrazi initiative deck, and they Touch of the Spirit Realmed their own thought not seer and i was like oh <laughs> oh and i was like okay so there's like some pretty cool stuff you can do in that space i mean the cards just really versatile and you can find creative ways to do it i've just been routinely impressed with that deck but i also hate it so take that with a grain of salt so kind of circling back to something that like bryant started to say the bar for success is so high in legacy right now like, it's very much a brewer's paradise in that, like, there's something new and relatively broken to explore, and it's changing the format around it. But the brews that people are going to have success with are going to have cards like Expressive Iteration, Minsk and Blue, White Bloom Adventurer, not, you know, your Titanias and your Smokestacks. And, like, despite the fact that this is an episode about brewing... We are very much talking about brewing at the upper echelons of power level in Legacy right now. Not necessarily some of the things that you might see in my content from, you know, day to day on my YouTube channel. Right. When I won the Star City Invitational, it was with Death and Taxes in Modern, which was not a popular deck. It absolutely thrashed Grixis Death Shadow, which was the best deck in that format, and it absolutely thrashed Eldrazi Tron, 
which was the second best deck in that format. And every other deck was tier two or below. There were two decks that were really viable. And I selected a deck that just ranched both of them. And that's kind of what we're talking about now. If you can brew something that really beats Delver and Initiative, then you're going to get rewarded with tournament wins. And right now, literally, it's Thursday night. We're recording this. Some results of the Legacy PTQ are starting to trickle in. Somebody top aided with Bogles in Legacy. And what this deck has is uh, Esper Sentinel, Invisible Stalker. That's an unblockable hexproof creature. And True Name Nemesis, which is also a functionally unblockable hexproof creature. And Lifelink Auras that draw more cards. The Initiative can't race this, and they can't defend the Initiative from it. Delver can't race this and they can't kill your creatures. This is the type of out-of-the-box thinking that can crack open a pseudo-solved metagame or at least a, a busted metagame with two very obvious best decks. So Brian touched on it a couple minutes ago, but Empty Shrine Kanushi, this is a card where it's supposed to break over the initiative mirror, right? And how Phil mentioned this is more about like finding those unique cards to crack something rather than to play your sweet brew that you play at your weekly or whatever i can't help but think of the time period where stoneforge mystic uh came into play and all of a sudden and i'm going to blink on the name here but brian the equipment that destroys other equipment mingara no manriki gusari my dude that's what it is manriki gusari it feels like we're in that sort of time period again where people are just looking for the super secret tech to crack a matchup within their own thing like you're looking for the mirror breaker almost does that make sense and I think we're going to see people revisiting a lot of really old cards. So, for example, I saw Anurag treat, uh, tweet out his deck list from today, and it was essentially a four-color control deck list that had stifles. And you can stifle an initiative trigger, and then you can, you know, try to control the, the game more normally if you've kind of stopped the initiative from happening the first time. And we've seen people playing dress downs trying to accomplish similar things. Yeah, I think dress down going up, I played... Two copies of Dress Down in my main deck of both my Legacy deck and my Vintage deck at Eternal Weekend. And White Initiative was present in both of those tournaments, and it was a great call. So Dress Down, I saw the Anurag deck as well. And finding ways to solve the initiative inside a shell that already respects Delver is another way to approach this, finding that secret tech. And even if it's not secret tech, even if it's old tech, and just cycle it back in, don't forget about the classics. But Dress Down, and I've seen a lot of Torpor Orbs lately, which uh, we're going to talk about a little bit in the next section, as maybe not as good as people want it to be. But the, that sort of effect, if you could tuck it into a shell that already is respectable against Delver, you'll find a lot more success than trying to reinvent the wheel and beat both of these things. Because both of these things are doing a different thing. They're asking different questions. And they're doing that thing fast. Real fast, yep. Um, if, if I were to pick one word to like describe current legacy i think the word that i would choose is fast blue red delver threatens a turn two murktide regent with turn three being very common you know the initiative deck threatens a turn one three three that turns into a five five that throws a lava axe at you the turn afterwards and this is not to mention like the combo decks that are trying to go under these initiative decks like, Elves has very fast kills. Oops All Spells has even faster kills. And even the control decks are playing things like Minsk and Boo, and that card does not fuck around. This is not Jace the Mind Sculptor Fate Seal you for a billion turns in a row, or bury you in cards. It's like, no, hamster, 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 fling hamster, you're dead. I would agree with the word fast to describe the current legacy format. It, it's a 
it's blazing fast out there. You got to be ready to either slow it down or engage on those terms. And I suppose before we kind of get into our next section here and we start thinking about like the things that you really need to be answering in the format, a, a caveat to this episode is that many cards that are going to be very good and very impactful in Legacy still aren't on Magic Online. The, the White Plume Adventure and the Season Dungeoneer were kind of the first batch. There are more coming, so expect to see more interesting periods of brewing like this as the remaining initiative cards... Comet, Stellar Pup, Triumph of St. Catherine, uh, Mawlock, and many uh, Paradise Lost, and many other cards start hitting the platform. Guacamole Goblin. Mind Goblin is the real name. But yeah, the I, I've mentioned it in I think the last three episodes straight. Triumph of St. Catherine. We're talking about how fast Legacy is. What What is a two mana 5-5 five, five lifelink due to a fast format? <laughs> does that make the control decks faster or does it force everyone else to slow down? lest they get ambushed vipered by a 5-5 lifelink. I, I don't know. That's the one I'm most excited about getting the chance to really unload on. Like These cards exist. You could play with them in paper. If that is how people play Magic, they might be listening to us like, what are you talking about? I got six lists already, but I don't. I play on Magic Online, and that's where the, the real work gets done. So I'm eagerly awaiting that card specifically. All right, now it's time for us to pay the bills with an ad read from our sponsor, Eminence Gaming. Are you interested in running a CEDH event or want your LGS to do so? Worried about the logistics of it? Fear not! Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software has you covered. You can create and manage tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system avoids repairing and makes for a smooth tournament experience. Visit eminence.events for further details. That was lovely, Phil. I, I, I try. All right, moving on. We've kind of created a short list of things that you should be thinking to answer. Problems that you are going to need to answer if your brew is going to be successful. And... I think I'm going to go ahead and list off all of these now, and then we'll kind of delve into each one for a minute or two. You need to be thinking about the initiative, evasive creatures, snowballing control finishers, being able to deal with whatever the current combo deck of the week is, respecting artifacts out of your sideboard, and not becoming too narrow and focused that you can't beat the random decks that people are actually going to show up to events with. So let's start with answering the initiative. This is, you know, probably the biggest question. How are you supposed to attack this initiative deck? You know, it's it's a tough thing to ask because the deck is built to keep and hold the initiative. But what are some things that we can do to help? Yeah, we already mentioned stopping the initiative in terms of dress down, torpor orb, trusty old force of will. Remember that one? Days. And uh, we talked about stifle. Building decks that want to play cards like that anyway and they get extra use if they if you get paired against the initiative seems like a reasonable place to be uh, i'm thinking about maybe uh phyrexian dreadnought decks those decks love a dress down they love a stifle and they're pretty good at taking the initiative with their 12 12 trampler there's brew space there or just tucking those into existing decks like anorog just putting stifle into a zero deck throw back to the old pokepile where sometimes you stifle a fetch land to get a cheese. Sometimes you turn three Uro, use the trigger to make a land drop, use that land drop to stifle the sacrifice trigger, and then you just have a turn three Uro. And sometimes you use stifle defensively on the initiative. It's that sort of brewing to stop the initiative. One thing I would like to mention here is the direct correlation of Pauper and how it affects Legacy. So in Pauper, when people were trying to figure out how to beat initiative, they were like, okay, well, you have to be able to steal it easily. So they started looking at effects like the uh, 
the one black creature in initiative in the ninjas deck. Why can't uh, I changeling do? outcast and then uh slither blade also had a renaissance and popper for about a week. Exactly. So cards like that. But then people realized, oh, if this is effective, what if we do this in red? Because the burn deck has always been quite good. And then they rediscovered Kodaltha Rebirth because what it did was it allowed you to sacrifice your experimental synthesizer or chromatic star or whatever. And then you would get a blocker on top of two attackers. So no matter what, your opponent was going to lose the initiative. And I think that's an interesting way of going about it because even after the initiative left the format, everyone was like, oh, could all the rebirth is just cracked. We're going to keep playing this card no matter what. And I think that everyone looks at elves as the, or is like a top answer to initiative because it can just like go over it, but it actually does the same thing that could all the rebirth does, which is put a bunch of creatures on the ground and just take the initiative and then not give it back. Because while they're not playing one card that gives you three one ones, elves is an incredibly efficient deck at putting four creatures onto the battlefield on turn two. And I think that space isn't, it doesn't get enough credit. And Elves is another deck that's really good at adjusting to what's going on, especially the the Hello Newton squad. They had four snuff outs in their main deck the week that White Initiative was introduced on Magic Online. They were ready. Season Dungeoneer is the way to just bust open the creature matchups because protection from creatures. What a joke line of text that is, by the way. What the hell? But anyway, if you snuff out the attacker or the, en- the Dungeoneer before it has a trigger, then you don't have to worry about that. Just zero mana, your thing's gone, no questions asked. I still have four one ones in play and the initiative. That sort of slight adjustment to plug the one hole that was left open, that's really smart stuff. Yeah, and trying to fight the initiative just by taking it in combat with regular creatures doesn't tend to work because both of the white initiative creatures as well as the primary red initiative creature all have something that makes them good at either taking or keeping initiative. So... White Plumed, White Plume Adventurer uh, essentially is going to turn itself into a 5-5 that has pseudo-vigilance because it can untap itself. And it is going to be ahead of the power curve of most creatures in Legacy. And Seasoned Dungeoneer can force itself or another creature through opposing blockers. So finding things like Snuff Out that can like just outright stop these cards or finding your early evasive creature, um, you know, as we're seeing with these Invisible Stalker things, that's much better than trying to just rumble with a bigger creature. You're probably not going to find the space that lines up well. Right. And I played eight cast on the channel this week. It was a list I I just took from someone who went eight and two at Eternal Weekend. And they had four Psy in their deck and only two Kappa Cannoneer, only three Thought Monitor. They prioritize Psy as a four of, which is not something I've really seen before. You're, usually Psy fills in the last one to three slots in the deck. But I have to imagine pooping out two or three one-one flying creatures is out of respect for the initiative. And having those uh, multiple recurring blockers and attackers coming out, that's a good way to get around to solitude or poke through a touch the spirit realm or whatever and then keep it. Yeah, I like that. Um I don't remember where I read this. I read on Twitter or somewhere someone talking about the eight cast versus initiative matchup. And they were saying like Psy and Kappa Cannoneer are kind of the two biggest things to make that matchup work in your favor, because like those are the things that are going to let you take and potentially hold the initiative. Yeah, I had a game where uh, I had a my opponent. It was against the uh, the turbo version. I I mentioned my opponent went Tundra 
Lotus Petal, Lotus Petal, White Plume Adventure on turn one. And I just crapped out a bunch of artifacts and played Thought Monitor. Uh, that's a flying creature. And my opponent hit me for their five damage. And then I poked them and took the initiative and then started putting stuff in front of their 5-5 five five and narrowly eked out the game. So it turns out if you are able to cast a seven mana spell on turn one, that's a way to keep up with the initiative. But in all seriousness, that, that could have been any flying creature. I think this is probably a good point into pivot, pivoting into point two. You need to be thinking about what you are going to do against evasive creatures. Because a lot of people are turning to flyers, you know, be it, you know, your Ice Fang Kowattles or otherwise evasive creatures, your Dragon Rage Channelers, your True Name Nemesis, Invisible Stalker. People are turning to these things that are difficult to block so that they can take the initiative and you need to have your plan to kill them, you know. Do you have your endurances that are going to kill flyers? Do you have your council's judgment or your terminus or your supreme verdict that can be an answer to a resolved true name nemesis? You, you got to be thinking about how you are going to beat these cards. Yep. Delver, luckily, we've been living for a year or more in Delver's world where every single card in their deck flies already. So we should have some respect for flying built in. But true name nemesis is in a resurgence. We haven't seen that card in a while, but now there's high incentives to put it into play and invisible stalker wasn't on my bingo card but we got it in there here on the last couple days of 2022 those require very specific answers one of which pyroblast can get it on the stack pretty cleanly but once that thing's in play uh, it could be time for the return of black cards in the format uh, snuff out is a black card we mentioned that one already plague engineer wipes out things like that uh, sudden edict is a card that is just on the fringe of playability uh, there's you have to think creatively uh, supreme verdict is a card i love unfortunately supreme verdict does not take the initiative so just wrathing these decks isn't good enough if they are initiative decks but dress down into supreme verdict is a real plan against th these sort of strategies as an aside plague engineer historically is very good against traditional builds of elves you know, one of the reason why Newton's, uh, you know, fiend artisan, you know, the rock style elves deck has been successful is like that is looking to dodge the negative one, negative one effects that are very good. And the more you start tilting back towards, you know, OG combo elves, the better Plague Engineer does get against you. Moving on to number three, you need to be thinking about snowballing control finishers. And by that, I mean things like Uro and Minsk and Boo that are going to kind of dominate the game and accrue resources or accrue damage relatively quickly. And all these I, I hate to beat this drum, but the initiative also is in this category. There's lots of mid-range bant decks just tucking White Plume Adventurer in there. And that'll kill you like an Uro, it'll kill you like a Minskin Boo if you don't have a plan to beat these accruing resources out of control decks. And, like, if you think the initiative is obnoxious, like, imagine your turn one season Dungeoneer, your turn two season Dungeoneer off a Noble Hierarch just backed by fucking Force of Will. Like, who who's laughing now? It's the person playing the initiative cards and Force of Will. Like, it's it's scary. And I, I have seen, like, Jeskai Delver with White Plume Adventurers as a thing that is starting to come around. Yep, it's a reason to be white. White Plume Adventurer is just a serious engine, self-contained, doesn't ask you much. It's also counterplay against the initiative because you don't have to attack. Your creature just has to arrive and then you have the initiative. There's 
a lot of reasons, both offensive and defensive, to be playing that card right now. It kind of reminds me of the Umazawa's Jite standard format. Back then when the legend rule was when a second legend is cast, they both die. Umazawa's Jute was just played as disenchant for your opponent's Umazawa's Jutes. We kind of get that play pattern with White Plume Adventurer in decks that would not normally want it or want to be attacking at all. All these four-color control decks are trying to drag the game on to the mid-game so that these these cards can kind of spiral and take the game out of their control. You know what your plan A is versus those decks, but figure out what you are going to do when things go wrong and these cards actually get a chance to tick up for a turn or two. There's a lot of really good things to fight about Ninsk and Boo. So for example, you know, a sideboard Caracas, if you're a deck that can search for lands, can really invalidate that Planeswalker and turn it into, you know, not a total joke. Like, it, they can still probably find uses for it. It's still going to get, you know, a Rashadden port at least worth of value every turn. Really takes the pressure off. I know that it was a couple months ago at this point, but having gone to the Legacy Pit Open and just walking around in between rounds, and there was a lot of games left over that were just a Caracas staring down Minsk and Boo and just being like, okay, I'll Caracas it every single turn. And if they didn't, they would be like, oh, I finally can put Uro into play and Minsk. And they'd be like, okay, end step, bounce your Uro, untap, bounce your hamster. Their turn, they would get a hamster. And they're like, yes, I get in for four damage now. Uh, like that sort of play pattern was really draining to watch. And it took a very long time. Yeah, I think we've mostly figured out that we need to beat Caracas with those Minsk and Boo decks at the Legacy Pit. I think that was still kind of new, kind of hot. Uh, but but yeah, um, those tiny little advantages, those weird play patterns, just sacrificing five cards in your graveyard to put Uro into play just to narrowly get in for four. It happens. Yeah, so, you know, four-color control decks. Maybe maybe consider a Wasteland or something so you have an out to that, you know, have a Pithing Needle or whatever. Uh, we're, we're playing it, don't worry. There, there's one or two Wastelands pretty stock in those lists with with Life from Long. Number four here is be aware of how to deal with the current combo deck. And for this section, I'm not necessarily going to point my finger at any one specific deck because, like, this is something that is going to fluctuate from weekend to weekend. So recently, for example, there has been a lot of elves. That deck has definitely seen a resurgence. That's one of the things that is really on my mind right now. But there are also people trying to attack by going even faster than elves. Just be aware of what you need for the combo deck that you expect people to be playing on any given weekend. For a huge portion of the last year, Doomsday was just the de facto combo deck to beat, but the initiative has a relatively strong Doomsday matchup, so that's probably not your default best combo deck anymore. And Doomsday gets a lot of splash hate from all these dress downs and torpor orbs we've been talking about. Those are also good against Thassa's Oracle. Maybe even better than they are against White Flip Adventure. For the decks that are trying to go underneath, almost all of them, and I say almost because it's not quite true, but the majority of them are graveyard combo decks. So if you played a card like Leyline of the Void, you're shutting off Reanimator, the Epic Gamble, Oops All Spells, and it's really tough to be a turn one combo deck that is consistent enough to be faster than the initiative dropping a Chalice of the Void or turn one Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, whatever. So having Leyline of the Void or Fairy Macabre really does go far. I've noticed that a lot of the initiative lists are cutting Mindbreak Trap now, or at least I'd say 50% of them. But what baffles me is the ones that are cutting it are playing Deafening Silence. And Phil, maybe you can speak more to this than I can. But it's so strange to me to see Deafening Silence 
in the deck because it's the same matchup that you want to use your Chalice of the Voids. So there's a natural friction between Chalice of the Void and Deafening Silence that I've noticed in some lists, but those lists are high placing. Whether or not that's an accident, I'm unsure. Uh, you're the expert here. Drop some knowledge. Part of it is like a sequencing thing. If you have Deafening Silence and Chalice of the Void, you're naturally going to want to probably play like your basic planes, Deafening Silence, and then follow it up with Chalice of the Void so they don't end up tripping on each other in the early turns of the game and if you play like lockpiece lockpiece initiative card you're like you're probably okay um i have not like explicitly tested initiative decks versus combo decks like i don't i don't know what is correct or not here so i i think i'm gonna tap out on this one and just say like i i don't have my my finger on the the pulse for this question there's also just the simple fact of if I have Chalice on one, I'm cool with Deafening Silence just rotting because I've already have a lock piece. Obviously, it would be nice to cast them both, but you know, Bounty of Riches. And one deck that I want to shout out here in the combo section is Painter. Painter has been on our, I don't know if it's fair to call it a sleeper because it's been steadily part of the metagame since Urza Saga was printed. We've shouted out Painter a number of times as one of the, the best decks that's not really talked about in the best decks conversations it's it's very common you know delver initiative elves we hear talk about but you know painter is creeping on on goldfish right now it's the fifth most played deck it's hard to play a league and not get paired into it right now yeah i agree i i see it every single league i play it's crazy and on on the note of cards not on magic online there is essentially a a vindicate style black red permanent from one of the Warhammer 40k decks that is relatively good in painter. Yeah, Chaos Defiler. Thank you, Chaos Defiler. That is something that is absolutely going to see a lot of Magic Online play once it's available. I love that Brian just knows every card. You can be like Brian. I'm thinking of this card from Portal Three Kingdoms, and he'll just know it. I mean, part of that is having played Magic obsessively since the mid 90s. And the other is a Chaos Defiler specifically alongside Triumph of St. Catherine. I got lists. I got things kicking around in my brain. I need Magic Online to catch up with paper because I'm hurting here. I'm exploding from my brain. I need to relieve the pressure. I'm ready on those two. All right. Next up, point number five, respecting artifacts in the sideboard. We've already naturally brought up eight cast over the course of this podcast. That deck is incredibly strong. Urza Saga, just one of the best artifact based or artifact deck tools of all time, you know, be it in Painter, be it in 8-cast, you need to be able to deal with artifacts. And if you just kind of think back to the amount of meltdown that has seen play this year, like that that's a very good indicator of like how much you need to respect artifacts. I know the like crux of legacy conversation right now is on the initiative and is on Blue Red Delver, but like Artifacts are real. Have a plan for them, be it Force of Vigor, Meltdown, whatever. Uh, this just in right now, Andrea Mancucci just in real time won the the Magic Online PTQ with, you guessed it, White Initiative. Oh, this is some good tech. Blessed Alliance in the sideboard as an edict effect to answer uh, evasive creatures like True Name Nemesis. I like that. Oh god, he has Archon of... Absolution. I lost to this card in... At the standard Pro Tour final, when I registered Mono White and some Maniac put this card in their deck. Two main deck walking ballista. 
I'm going to take a minute to read bad white cards for the people who don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of shameful things that I've played in events. Blessed Alliance is one in a white for an instant that has Escalate 2, so you can pay this cost for each mode chosen beyond the first. Target player gains 4 life, untap up to 2 target creatures, and most importantly here, target opponent sacrifices an attacking creature. So this is essentially a white edict uh, with some degree of flexibility. Untapping two of your creatures when you have, you know, 5-5 five, five or larger creatures can be an absolute combat blowout. Phil, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen this. Maybe I'm sleeping, but did you notice that there's Palace Jailer in this list? That's been there the whole time. Okay. You just probably ignore it with the decks you play, but yeah, uh, two Jailer is pretty standard. Uh, I would also like to shout out real quick Blessed Alliance, which is not a card I've thought about in a long time. Gain for life is the top mode and cards resolve in the order of the words that are written on them. And the gain for life targets a player. Back in the old modern days, we used to escalate this target death shadow player gains for life and then sacrifices one of their remaining creatures after the gain for life wipes out all the shadows. It's good shit. All right. The, the other questionable card here is Archon of Absolution, which is three colors and a white for a 3-2 flyer. It is pro-white and creatures can't attack you or a planeswalker you control unless their controller pays one for each of those creatures. So the idea is you tax your opponent to make an attack in the first place, and you also have something that's incredibly good at taking and holding the initiative in one sideboard slot. Yep. And this is an X2, so it's larger than the smallest walking ballistas. They actually have to invest in this to remove it. It's bigger than Kanushi by a lot. All right, well, that's that. We were talking about something else. Congrats, Mangu. We were talking about artifacts. Uh, this this was the year, remember when we all had to scramble to buy Seeds of Innocence? Remember that one that just suddenly appeared out of 1997 to be a legacy playable in 2022? Brotherhood's End is getting a lot of play right now. Oh my god, that card has ruined me in so many games oh, yeah. in both Legacy and Vintage. I keep thinking to myself, like, okay, I don't think there's anything that I can lose to now. And then my opponent casts that card, and I'm just making all of the sad noises. Yep, modal spell of deal three to all creatures and planeswalkers, or destroy all artifacts with mana value three or less. That's the type of flexible card that these four-color soup decks are happy to play, because it's, it's good in a lot of places. All right, and kind of our final point here in problems to answer, like, in brewing... Make sure that you are not making your deck like so narrow as to only being able to beat two decks because in the wide range of formats that are formats like Legacy and Vintage where there are all sorts of broken things that you can do, people are going to show up to events with all sorts of things, not just like the absolute top tier meta decks. And you need to make sure that what you're doing is powerful enough or flexible enough to deal with the person who's going to show up uh, to the event with you know, Nick fit or whatever. I have seen many statements uh, over the past week of people who have been dying a lot with their main deck Pyroblast in their hand, and they play against five non-blue decks in a league. Somebody else tweeted today, they O2'd this PTQ we've been talking about, one of my local friends, and he basically said, I teched for Delver and Mono White and played against two decks that weren't those two things and lost. And yeah, it's still Legacy. It's a big format. People are going to be brewing. People are going to be trying to come from the side too. You're not the only one who thought of that. And you got to be able to beat the random BS too. I actually approach deck building a little bit different from, uh, maybe it's not different from most people, but 
I am okay with losing to random strategies if I'm going to be better against the upper echelon of the format. So I'm okay with making my deck to be better against Delver, Initiative, Painter, etc. If I'm going to be okay losing to, I don't know, uh, Mono Black Helm. Some deck that is that exists but is on the fringier side of things, for example. Does it suck when you lose to Mono Black Helm? Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with playing it. But I'd rather just focus my sideboard thoughts on those matchups. And this actually was a conversation I had with a friend who's a trophy grinder. And they're like, no, you should be preparing to beat everything. And I said, that is a trap. And they're like, well, I can beat everything if I build my sideboard right. And I was like, okay, good luck. I'm not going to have this conversation. Because a lot of players truly do feel that they can beat everything. But in order to actually do that, it is so difficult because not only do you have to have those random sideboard slots, you have to get lucky in those matchups anyway. So if I'm willing to get lucky, I'd rather do it in the matchups that are more fringe and have the dedicated slots for the bigger piece of the pie, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a couple different layers to what you're saying. Uh, In a deck like the Epic Storm needs to pick its targets differently than a deck with Prismatic Ending and Force of Will in it. So that's one factor. Uh, and you're not wrong. It, it, we're, I'm just adding context for our listeners here. And another factor is how fringe are we going? Like, I'm not going to play uh, Infernal Reckoning. Uh, I, I think that's the one black exile a colorless card gain life equal to its power. Like, I'm not going to play that just in case I hit Eldrazi. You know, like that's a, a fringe too far. But is playing a second dress down out to respect both initiative and doomsday and urza saga decks all at the same time at the expense of a collector oof because i'm not i don't think i'm gonna hit storm or is it like playing the collector roof over the second or third dress down just in case i hit storm but it's also good against eight cats so like there's there's layers to this how fringe are you going to beat the deck versus what is your deck naturally capable of putting the brakes against anyway yeah, I, I kind of wanted to zero in on like the turn count here. The average deck, sorry, the average turn that one of Brian's decks in Legacy probably kills on is probably like 2.5 or something like that, right? Like you you go pretty quickly. You can power through and get wins through just about anything if your deck is going to win at that pace. Whereas if you are going to go and win on turn six or later because you're playing a control deck or a grindy deck like Death and Taxes, you need to approach your your deck building very, very differently because you don't have that raw power and speed that a combo deck might. Yeah, that's why I'm such a simp for Brainstorm, Prismatic Ending, Force of Will. Give me reasonable answers to anything I might run into and the ways to find them. Uh, I respect combo decks doomsday epic storm whatever but they come with the lack of the ability to do that specific thing that i love doing so uh, again what your direction you're coming from informs that sort of decision and our final section here is kind of some deck building pitfalls that you might want to avoid and the first one is thinking that x card is going to solve y problem when it actually doesn't and historically we've seen this a lot with people saying this sideboard card fixes my Delver matchup and everyone in their heads in the stands is just like shaking their heads going like, no, it doesn't, buddy. 
No, it doesn't. That deck is so much better. You need more than just this. Right. The example that we have in our notes here is Torpor Orb as just a Torpor Orb is good. We have shouted out that it does fill a role, but just slapping two Torpor Orbs into whatever deck you were playing a month ago is not going to solve your initiative matchup. It's not enough. That's not how that works. Especially when you're on the draw. White Plume coming down on turn one or turn two before you have your Torpor Orb in play. Like, even if you have the right card for that matchup, if you have it at the wrong time, it's not actually solving your problems. And I know a lot of the people in the lands Discord in particular were, like, pulling their hair apart, going, like, how how do we fix this matchup? What, what card are we supposed to play? Because the things that they were trying weren't working. Yep. And one of my friends at Eternal Weekend, he had a turn two Torpor Orb on the play against White Initiative. And at the end of his second turn, they pitch cast two Solitudes, which due to Torpor Orb, don't die when you evoke them. And then they just untapped on their second turn with six power of lifelink and started bashing. And he died real quick. Just went all in on the Torpor Orb and was not good enough. That's beautiful. I know that we already touched on it, but... Touch of the Spirit Realm, see what I did there? Wordplay. That card answers Torpor Orb. So it's a card that they play four of in their main deck, and you're playing two Tor- Orper- Torpor Orbs and just praying that it's enough? It seems kind of foolish. Yep. Next up, if you oversideboard for one deck, and right now that deck might be, say, Blue Red Delver or the Initiative, you might leave yourself with too many other weaknesses across the board. So for example, I have seen a lot of decks trying to adapt by playing three to four copies of some pro-white creature in their sideboard. And while that might really, really, really and truly improve your initiative matchup, what what cards came out for those? Did you just lose your graveyard hate? Did you just you lose your artifact hate? Did you lose your combo hate? You know, what were you dropping there? Did you gain more overall percentage points by adjusting your sideboard? Or did you fix the, you know, fix one of the very important matchups at the cost of a ton of ancillary matchups? It's worth noting, I think sometimes accepting that you're going to punt is the right move. I think the best example that I can think of with this is lands. A lot of lands players decided a year or so ago, we're never going to beat most combo decks anyway let's quit playing the memory traps and the spheres and just make our fair matchups insane across the board because how often are they actually ever beating oopsell spells or storm or whatever and i think that made lands a better deck and sometimes cutting those cyborg hate spells is the right thing to do it doesn't matter if it's combo it could be for another archetype or whatever i'm not trying to sell anyone on cutting their storm heat here i'm just saying for some decks it is the right move yeah and if we look back at a famous moment in magic's history the uh owling mind deck back in standard that was a deck where you used howling mind to keep your opponent's handful of cards and eventually uh one of the owl artifacts would start killing them it's like a black vice effect that was legal in the format zoo was also a deck in that format with lightning helix and aggressive creatures, Curdape just crashing in. Zoo can empty its hand faster than you can fill it. That matchup was like 99-1. And those were both decks played at that Pro Tour. But Owling Mine was just like, we're so good against everyone else, we're just going to punt Zoo. Forget about it. The matchup was actually so bad that in the top eight of the Pro Tour, Antoine Ruel, I believe it was, snuck an Ancestral Recall into his owling mind deck as a joke he was just like i'm gonna ancestral recall in standard and then concede the match because i'm cheating and that's okay to do uh he, he that's a story he got to the top eight of the pro tour then ran into zoo and was just like okay my tournament's over but i didn't bother trying to fix this unwinnable matchup and i was rewarded with a pro tour top eight for it and kind of the last thing here is if you have an unwinnable matchup kind of like the ones that we're talking about here don't don't go in and just like overly dedicate your sideboard to 
trying to fix that matchup. Dodging is a real strategy. That said, if you are trying to dodge like Blue-Red Delver or Initiative, like if you are trying to dodge the number one and number two decks of the format, maybe reevaluate where you're at in terms of a deck choice here, because I don't think dodging those decks is realistic in as big of an event as like anything that really matters is. We were looking at some tweets uh, when we took a quick break and someone played against Blue-Red Delver literally seven times in their PTQ today. So like trying to dodge Blue-Red Delver, maybe not wise. And I'd like to point out that if you know your metagame, we're talking about the legacy metagame, like if you're playing an online challenge or a turtle weekend, but if you know your local store's legacy metagame, you can abuse that. Here locally in Pittsburgh, nobody was playing Blue-Red Delver for a long time when it was the best deck. I knew that at our, our monthly events with 35 or so people, maybe one or two would be on Delver. And you better believe I abused that. I cut my carpet of flowers, I cut some other crap that I didn't really want in my deck, and I was rewarded for that, because I just know my local metagame, these 35 people, what they want to be doing. So you can abuse that a little bit on the small scale, but at the large scale, don't leave your house trying to dodge Delver and win an online PTQ. The second place list from the PTQ is published, it is Painter. So we talked about Painter a little bit today, and just a note, Four copies of Mindbreak Trap in the board, four Leyline of the Void, two Torpor Orb, two Fury. So when you look at the sideboard, it has a plan. It's beat the decks that are trying to go under me, stop initiative with Torpor Orbs and Furies. I think that actually makes quite a bit of sense. And being the six blast main deck, you're not too worried about Murktide region. I think that's fair to say. It, sometimes you want to know what your problem is. This is how Vintage builds sideboards, just seven cards for Shop, seven cards for Bazaar, and one extra Flusterstorm for the Blue Mirror. That's usually what those look like. And you usually can't build legacy sideboards like that, but if you know what problem you're trying to solve, it kind of looks like that. Four Leyline, four Trap, four cards for Initiative. Let's go. All right. Do we have any kind of closing thoughts here as far as brewing going into the new year? Leave your Nick Fit deck at home, kids. Wow. Wow second stray at Nick Fit in this episode. Let's leave Nick Fit alone and happy brew year, everybody. Stay safe out there. See you in 2023. Leave Nick Fit alone. This set's gonna fuck.